in the New Testament, first chapter of James. As we are picking up where we left off last week because I didn't finish. And we're going to cover our last two points in our message entitled God's Glory and Suffering as the Means of Sanctification. We have included, basically duplicated your notes from last week with the exception that we have now filled in the blanks from last week's portion and kind of condensed um, um, the information from last week. And that leaves us with the latter two um, characteristics of suffering that we will deal with today. So if you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you a little summary. We observed last week two things about suffering from 1 Peter chapter 4. Number one, we observed that suffering is not unexpected. It is the normal experience of the Christian life to endure suffering. I, I love what his song said. He said, Lord, when I found you, I thought that the suffering wouldn't be there anymore. But what he realized all along was the suffering still there, but now Jesus carries you through. I hope somebody's going to help me out today. Now, there will be likely periods in your life when things are going great. There will be periods of, uh, of peace. But these periods fall upon the believer and the non-believer alike. Periods of peacefulness are not indications that you're living right with God. Which is what the prosperity gospel will lead you to believe. That if you live right with God, things are going to go your way. You're going to get what you want. You're going to get the new Bentley and the big mansion, right? <clears throat> it doesn't happen that way, folks. A lot of times, the periods of peace are not indication that you're doing things with God, but they're indication that you're not doing anything with God. Because when you don't do anything with God, the devil, the enemy, does not care about you. As long as you are serving yourself, the enemy doesn't care about you. You're his best friend. And you can come to church and go home and do whatever you want to. And the devil never gives a hill of beans a different. Because you're not doing anything for the Lord. You're not making disciples. You're not witnessing for God. But based upon scriptures we've observed last week, we know that life will not be devoid of suffering. Second thing we observe is that suffering is not punishment. We discussed last week that if a believer suffers, it's not because they are under a curse from God. We see that all the disciples suffered. So does that mean the disciples were under God's curse? No. They were walking with Jesus. They were living in obedience to the Great Commission. It is when you follow Christ that you find the road of affliction. The disciples suffered. Jesus suffered. And he was perfect. (laughs) If suffering is an indication of being right with God, why did Jesus suffer? There was no... As a matter of fact, he was the only person ever right with God. On his own accord. And he suffered more than me and you ever will. The early church was in constant suffering. matter of fact... Many of the New Testament letters were written specifically for the purpose of encouraging believers who were in the midst of great suffering and great persecution. That's why the Bible is a living book. It's not just written to people thousands of years ago. Because guess what? If you're going through suffering, then it's about your condition as well. It's a living book. You see, 
All the things that happened in the New Testament church were not because God was punishing them. They were being jailed, persecuted, stoned, beheaded, martyred. Not because God was punishing them. However, let's contrast that to the judgment that God rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was because they were wicked. My friend, God's judgment comes upon the wicked. Not the righteous. Okay? As believers, God has accounted us as righteous. That's why Romans says we are declared righteous before God. We, we hold the same status as Jesus holds with the Father. We are engrafted into sonship, adopted into sonship with the Father, in communion with the nature of Jesus Christ. We're in covenant with God. All punishment, all wrath was poured out upon Jesus who took our place. I love that second song that we sang in Christ alone. It says, in him the wrath was satisfied. In him the wrath was satisfied. If there are preachers today who claim that God punishes believers for their sin, then they really don't believe that Jesus died for our sin. If Jesus paid the wrath for our sin, then why must you and I still pay the wrath? God is not a backhanded banker. If you pay off your mortgage, he doesn't ask for more. If your mortgage is paid off, that debt is paid. Amen? That's what we have to understand about imputed righteousness. That all our sin has been placed on Jesus. Righteousness has been imputed to us. There's no longer debt. You don't have to walk around the rest of your life in debt to God. There is no, you are not in debt to God anymore. You can't do nothing to make yourself any more right than Jesus has made you. And when you believe that, you'll understand what it means to be one with God. You see, we're liberated from the mentality of debt because Christ became the curse for us. He took the effects of the curse from sin. So where does that bring us today? Knowing that suffering is an expected part of the believer's experience and suffering is not God's punishment, then what is the purpose? I mean, won't I still be a Christian if I don't have to suffer? I mean, won't I still love God if I don't have to endure suffering? (laughs) Won't I still follow God if I don't have health problems and I don't have problems in my family and I don't have problems in my marriage or whatever it may be? Well, it might be so. Maybe you will follow God. But when we understand that sanctification is the process of God making us more useful for His purpose, the process of becoming stronger for His purpose, it's the process which God removes the grasp that the flesh has on us. Sanctification doesn't end. God doesn't get you to a place that says, listen, I'm good with you right where you are. I'm going to let you hang out there for five years. I'm going to leave you alone. That doesn't happen, friend. If God is not always growing you, something's wrong. Now there may be points in your life where you don't recognize that God is growing you. And maybe you fall off the bandwagon for a little bit. But then you look back at you and you'll see that's exactly what God needed to do in your life to get you in the right mind frame. To make you know it's not about you. In this verse we read last week, 1 Peter 4.12, it says, Trials occur in our life to test us. I don't know if this is in your bulletin, but I want to read 1 Peter 4.12 before we get to James. Dear friends, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, we really didn't discuss last week that suffering comes to test us. Now, if you recall when you were in school, I'm still in school. I got to take a midterm exam tonight. Y'all pray for me. When you were in school, a test was given to see if you could pass. You didn't know if you could pass, and the teacher didn't know if you could pass. That's why the test comes. If you weren't prepared, you didn't pass. A test was given to see if you had completed the required skills in order to earn a grade for a class or to earn a particular degree. One of my most frequent nightmares growing up, I still have them to this day, was that I showed up in the class and I didn't know a test was going to be that day. How many of y'all had a dream like that? I showed up in the class and I find out there's a test. Some people said they had dreams about going to school and they realized they were naked. This is worst. In my mind, at least. I don't know. Some, somehow I'm scared that I'm going to show up. I even, I even have dreams that I show up to, to some speaking event and that I, I didn't know I was supposed to preach that day. And I'm shocked. Matter of fact, when I was in high school, one of the only times I ever skipped a class was because I had forgotten about a history test as a freshman and I hid in the bathroom for a whole hour and took the test the next day. <laughs> this is how much I feared tests. Because if I wasn't prepared, I was scared. But fortunately for our purposes today, this is not what the Bible is talking about when it says that we are tested in trials. So that's why our scripture for today from James chapter 1 brings a lot of clarity to the purpose of struggle and suffering as a test. If you're in James chapter 1, say word. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let me read 2 and 3 again. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. May God bless the reading of his word. Here's what we're going to learn about suffering from the book of James. If you're taking notes with us today, your bulletin is provided. Number one, testing is not measurement. Testing is not measurement. God is not measuring you to see if you're good enough. Okay? Some people think God is going to put you through a test to find out if you really have what it takes to get into heaven. God is going to put you through the test to find out if you really have enough faith to prove that you're a Christian. That's not the kind of test God's talking about. God's not a professor. He is a rescuer. And a rescuer doesn't save someone because they have what it takes. He saves someone because they don't have what it takes. When you have to take a, 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 a see, you see someone out there and they can't swim, you don't say, well, this is a test. I'm going to see if you pass or not. No, a rescuer jumps in there and rescues somebody because they don't have what it takes. God is not trying to determine if we're good enough in the test. Rather, in the test, he produces what is good in us i got to say that again. 
God is not trying to determine if we are good enough. Rather, in the test, he is producing what is good in us. He's sanctifying us. This particular word, testing, is used only one other time in the New Testament. And in that case, it is translated as proving. 1 Peter 1.6 says this, In this greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, that you have had to suffer grief in various kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuous of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even, through fire, uh, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. If you want to write that down, 1 Peter 1, 6 is where the word used in James is also used. 1 Peter 1, 6 is translated as proven, where the, the trial comes so that the proven genuous, genuineness of your faith results. So that word is translated testing, it's also translated proven. So what can we deduce from this? The word prove means to demonstrate the existence of something with evidence. So here's the deal, my friend. In the midst of the trial and in the midst of the suffering, God is proving to you that he is worthy. We are not proving to God that we are worthy. He is proving to us that he is worthy. It is the approved faith, the faith that shows the evidence of God's sufficiency that God takes us through the trial and the suffering. So it is in the midst of the trial that God is proving to you how genuine he is. It's building up your ability to endure the hard times. It is producing endurance. It is proving something within you. It is testing, creating Why does a runner need to build up endurance? The only reason is so they can run longer. So they can run faster. So they can not be as winded as they run. Why does God desire to build endurance in you as a believer? It's because you're not going to run the same race tomorrow that you've been running. you got a longer race up ahead of you. Y'all didn't catch it. Y'all didn't catch it. Some of you have been getting up and going to the track and walking a quarter mile. God says, listen. That's not all I want you to accomplish. You're going to have to run longer next year. You're going to have to run faster next year. There's going to be some endurance built up in you because there's something else that you're going to have to do for him. And you're going to have to be stronger than you are right now. God's desire is not to have little weak, mediocre Christians running around scared at the Great Commission. Oh, God, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can go to Haiti. I might get sick. You, hey, about 70% of the church is sick right here. You're going to get sick if you stay in Concord. I, I just don't know if I can leave, leave my family and my puppy dog for that long. Your puppy dog will be all right. It eats food that tastes like cardboard. It'll be all right. <laughs> you understand your dog eats the same thing every day its, its whole life? It'll be all right. It'll be the happiest when you get home, truthfully. (laughs) We're not just here to enjoy the ride. Paul says, I'm sorry, the writers of Hebrews says, run the race with perseverance. Run the race with endurance. Don't just simply mosey along 
man, this is a nice view out here. Get out there and run. We got a lot of people that are out for joy rides instead of for marathons. As Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, run in such a way as to win. I don't know if I've shared this story before. When I used to run cross country in high school, I don't know why I would literally throw up after every race. I would run so hard, I'd get so sick, I'd cross the finish line and I'd throw up. And if I didn't throw up, I didn't run hard enough. Still to this day, I start heaving when I run long distances. But if you're not out there to win, don't run. If we're, not, if, we're not, if we're not running it as to win, don't run. That's what Paul says. And the only one that can do that is one who has endurance when the pain comes. How many of you run? <laughs> I forgot I was talking to Baptists. <laughs> Hold on. What do you mean, preacher? You mean like if a dog's chasing me? Not literally. Does anybody like ever like just run? Anybody? Anybody? Dave? Okay. Uh, somewhat. Okay. <clears throat> so you remember in 2014, my, my wife wanted to run a half marathon. So being the gentle, humble husband that I am, I definitely wasn't going to let my wife accomplish something that I didn't accomplish. So I ran with her. And she did beat me. She trained for six months. I trained for six weeks. She beat me, but I can remember we were running 13 miles, and I can remember, man, mile seven or eight. I thought I was going to die. And, and Jennifer Walkenelson's hus husband was running with me, and I was breathing so hard. He said, man, are, are you, are you going to make it? I was like, I hope so. <laughs> but something happened when you run. They call it hitting the wall, and your body has to switch from, I think it's, anaerobic mode to aerobic mode your body has to switch from burning the carbohydrates in your stomach to burning what's actually in your tissue and when this switch happens you feel like you're going to die but once you break through it once I got I mean mile 7, 8, 9, 10 I didn't think I was going to make it once I got to mile 10 the last 3 miles I, th I said I think I can do it folks there's going to come a point in your life where you don't think you can do any more but you know what's going to happen? God's going to carry you through. So you can see that he is faithful, that he is sufficient, and he's given you strength that you didn't even know you had. See, trial means proving. God proves to us that he is sufficient and that he will give us new mercy even today when you go to bed at night and you don't think, man, I don't know if I can face another day. Guess what? You're going to get up tomorrow. You're going to wash your face. You're going to eat a Bojangles biscuit and you're going to make it another day, friend. I think sleep is literally God's grace to let us know that everything we're anxious about is going to be okay. There's some nights I lay down and I'm so anxious, my mind's running a thousand miles an hour. And if it wasn't for sleep, I don't, I'd be a nervous wreck. But you know what? I wake up in the morning and realize God made the sun come up again. God made me get up again. And he's going to carry it through. 
When our faith is tested, God is showing the sufficiency of himself. Trial is not proving to God that we're good enough, but it's proving to us that God is good enough. You know, I've heard that Jesus won't give you more than you can handle. How many of you have heard that? Jesus won't give you more. That's the biggest lie ever circulated in Christendom. That's the biggest lie. Because whenever something big comes, you must say, well, this must not be from God. Because God won't give me more than I can handle. My friend, he certainly will. He will break you. (laughs) He will utterly wreck you. (laughs) I don't know if y'all know this today. He will wreck you. So that you literally have nothing else holding you together but the knowledge of him. He will wreck you to the point where there ain't no family member that's going to let you know that things will be okay. He will wreck you to the point where even every church member you feel lets you down. Man, there ain't even enough good church members. Oh, bless God, that's why you're here. And the only thing you will know is Jesus is holding me together. They say that when you break a bone, you become stronger than it was before. I'm going to knock on wood. I've never broken a bone, which is amazing because I'm pretty dumb. But they say when you break a bone and it joins back together, then it's stronger than it was before and it won't break in that place again. This is like Jesus. See, when you're broken many times under the weight of suffering and trial, when you're broke many times, He puts you together. And the glue that holds you back is himself. And that glue is stronger than you were before. Jesus is always stronger. And let me tell you something else. God uses not only our pain and our suffering. This is going to blow your mind today. God uses even your sin for his purpose in your sanctification. What do I mean by that? God even uses your own sin to teach us about His grace and His mercy and His sufficiency. Because let me tell you what. Since you became a Christian, you still sinned. And the fact that God has not lifted His hand of favor off of you and crushed you under the rate of His judgment is evidence that He is calling you his child, and he still has a plan for you. And you can look back in the life, in your life, when you have failed, when you have sinned, when you have messed up, and you can see that God has even used your mess-ups to humble you, to sanctify you, to cleanse you. Isn't that amazing? God uses the dirtiest thing about us to teach us about his own character. His grace and His mercy. His patience. And the inability of our flesh to provide peace. I don't know about you friends, but when I've met Christians who were what I call really big sinners. It seems like they understand more of God's grace than people who think they were small sinners. Have you ever seen this was true? 
People that are really, I'm talking about people that was, uh, got, got let out of jail because they murdered some people. They got locked up on drug charges. Man, they're, they're crazy about the grace of God because they've like, man, I've completely blown it and God loves me. And then you have someone that, you know, they went to Sunday school all their life and, and they've uh, served in vacation Bible school and, and all these things. And they're like, well, you know, Jesus forgave me of my little sin. Let me tell you, my, here's the deal. There's no little sin. There's no little sin before God. Every sin before God is transgression against the almighty, holy one of the universe. There's no little sin. And that's what we must understand. Last thing we're going to talk about. Suffering is not meaningless. Suffering is not meaningless. I want to read verse 4 from the book of James again. It says, let endurance have its perfect result. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. What does this mean? This means that endurance is allowing your character to be developed. Endurance is keeping you in the process of sanctification. And therefore, the result of endurance is that you are perfected and completed. And I can look at a bunch of you today and know God's still got a long way to go, amen? amen. <laughs> I get up and look in the mirror, I say, man, God, you got work to do today. Because I got a long way to go. But praise God, his arm is not too short that it can save. It can save to the uttermost. It can save the worst sinner. It can save preachers. It can even save politicians. Though it doesn't happen as frequently as we like. Your suffering has meaning. One day you will be perfect, but that day is not here yet. Until, until then, sanctification continues. Sanctification is the process of becoming more Christ-like. Christ was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And God is molding you into that image where you're a person of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So do not despise the endurance that God is bringing about within you. Do not despise God when the pain comes in your life. Because it's that very pain... Which becomes the chisel that chips away at the fallen flesh. The marble statue cannot despise the chisel. Because it has to be the chisel. That takes away all the unnecessary pieces. The vine cannot despise the pruning shears. Because it is the pruning shears which take off the unnecessary so that more fruit comes. What is sanctification doing? It's taking off the unnecessary so more fruit comes in your life. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This means that in the span of eternity, all our troubles are light and momentary. Now, God is not making light of your troubles, but Paul is saying, Listen, guys, in the span of eternity, your troubles only last but a moment. Your troubles only last for a moment, but joy comes in the morning because they're developing in us a weight of glory that outweighs all the troubles that we're going through. And the character that God is developing within us will be that refined character so that when we're presented to Jesus Christ, we're presented as a spotless bride without blemish. 
God is sanctifying his holy church. He is sanctifying his bride. He's called his bride out of the world. He's justified his bride. And now he's sanctifying his bride. The problem today, the problem in today's culture, people want justification without sanctification. That's good. It's not in my notes. Pastor Dave, write that down so I'll remember it. There's no easy way. There's no easy path. The only road to glory is the path of Christ's sufferings. A friend shared a quote from Spurgeon with me this week. He says, Spurgeon said, The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our heart upon the black horse of affliction. That means some of the most powerful times in your life when God shows up and speaks to your heart are during those seasons of affliction. So do not despise the suffering. Do not despise the pain. We'll suffer just as Christ suffered. But in the midst of that, the flesh alone, oh, I'm sorry, God alone is glorified. The flesh gets no glory because when we're suffering, the flesh can take no glory in the pain. The flesh is not actually doing anything. God alone gets the glory even in the suffering because he's still creating in us something that we can't even create. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.3, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. My friend, do you hear that? Do you have that, do you have that attitude today? We rejoice in our sufferings. Let me, let me ask you a question. With, with everything God has done in your life, have you rejoiced in the pain? You know, a lot of times people on Facebook, they're at the beach, their feet propped up. Sun's out. Waves glistening. They say, man, God is good. Well, of course he's good when your feet are propped up on the beach. But is he good when the hardest times come? Is he good then? Can we rejoice? So my friend, suffering is creating in us something that we can't create. So let us rejoice. Let us take heart. Do not lose heart, but take heart. Consider it all joy when we face trials of many kind. Don't let the devil rob your trial of its joy. Because God is working in you. He is working through you and he is working on you so that you will be a perfect and a complete person in Jesus Christ. God's still working. I hope, I hope what can be changed through this past several weeks is our attitude about pain and suffering. I've even heard today some brothers who were witnessing to co-workers because their friends were going through some tragedy and they said, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God do this? The reason people get angry with God is because they don't have an answer. They don't know that God is doing something for his glory, even in the midst of pain. I pray that not only will you have an answer, but you will rejoice in what God brings you through. Let us pray. Father, we.